Exodus 23. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away disease from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites, Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you, until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, And from the desert to the Euphrates River, I will give into your hands the people who live in the land, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Once a month, as a whole staff team, we get together every Tuesday morning to talk and pray. And recently, we've been working our way through this book. It's Graham Bynan's short book, As You Look Forward to the Future. It's called Last Things First. And this Tuesday, Graham was um, helping us think about the need for reminders. In the chapter that we were looking at together, Graham wrote this. Sometimes we speak about the need for teaching as if we should learn something brand new every time we open the Bible. We all learn new things, of course. I don't deny that for a moment. But what is much more common is that we're reminded of what we already know. And that, in many senses, is exactly what's going on in Exodus 23. This book of the covenant, as we are seeing it called, that period from the Ten Commandments until next week in chapter 24, it's coming to a close. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at what you might call the kind of closing ceremony of this enormous event of God revealing both the Ten Commandments and then how those laws are applied in the book of the covenant. But before we get there, today, it's as though God takes a step back. And he reminds Moses and the Israelites of many of the truths and the lessons that he's already taught them. Why? Because they, like us, are forgetful. Because they, 
like us, are going to be tempted to ignore and disobey the things that God has just said to them. So before the closing ceremony next week in chapter 24, God reminds his people of four things they must never forget. The first is this. God promises to be with his people. God promises to be with his people. That's what's going on with this mysterious angel. I say mysterious only because there's so much about this angel that we don't have exhaustive detail about. But we've met this angel twice before. If you've been with us as we've worked through Exodus, you'll remember that when God, sorry, when Moses met God in the burning bush, drawn towards this bush in the middle of the desert that was burning but not burning up, Moses tells us, there the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. And as Moses approached the bush, God called to him from within it. There's a link being made right at the beginning between this angel and God. And then we see the same thing in chapter 14, where the angel comes back on the scene with a pillar of cloud and the pillar of smoke. And if you can remember that section, they're clearly distinct. The angel's not the same as the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, but both of them are together very visual reminders to God's people that God is really, really present with them. In our passage here, God speaks of this angel in such a way that although the angel's clearly distinct, he's equal with God. Verse 21 God's name is in him. Verse 22, the people are commanded to listen to the angel because that's God talking. Verse 23, God's angel is going to go ahead of the Israelites and God himself will wipe out his people's enemies. The angel's distinct from God, but he is equal with God, which is why throughout church history, many, many, many Christians have understood the angel to be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. Now, you think about that from our perspective, and we're left with all sorts of questions that the text doesn't answer. But Moses would have had all sorts of questions that God didn't answer for him either. So if you read through the rest of the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're the five books that Moses wrote I don't think there's another reference after this to the angel speaking to the people. And nobody really knows what God meant exactly when he said that the angel won't forgive your rebellion. You can come and speak to me afterwards and I can explain as best I can what might be at stake there. But what mattered most was that the angel reminded the Israelites that God himself was with them. He was the one who was going to go ahead of them. I don't know how you sometimes feel about um, your connection with God, whether he's lagging behind somewhere or, or just kind of somewhere alongside you. Here's a beautiful description of the reality of the Christian experience and for believers in the Old Covenant, that God is leading the way. He's not just side on. He is the one who is guarding them. He's the one who is going to take them to the very place that he's promised them to be. If you think about that from uh, the Israelites' perspective, that would have been enormously comforting for them because they've just been given all of these laws and commands 
And there might have been a temptation to feel that God's just dropped them an instruction manual and now he's going to leave them to it. But here's the angel as a visual reminder that God himself is with them. He was with them then and he would be with them all the way until he brought them home. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you have the same amazing hope yourself. The God we love assures us in the book to the Hebrews, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In the person of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ himself promised to his disciples, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And when his disciples are wondering, Jesus, what does it mean to follow you? How are we supposed to know the steps to take? Jesus says it is as simple as this. I tell you the truth, I am the way. For all of those wonderful privileges that the Israelites would have had in knowing by looking at that angel that God himself was with them, our experience is even greater because the angel was out there. Christian, the Holy Spirit of God is at work in your heart. That is how much God is with you. Now, there are some of you who are facing really, really challenging times. So challenging, perhaps, that there may not be any other person in this room that really knows how hard a season you're going through. I want you to hear afresh the promises that God has made that he will never leave you. The devil is desperate for you to forget that command. Because if he can convince you that God is distant and disinterested, you won't turn to him in all that's hard. But God has said to you and me and all his people, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Second thing the Israelites were reminded is that God commands his people to obey him. Now, the end of um, this book of the covenant reminds us that the Mosaic law isn't just a list of all these laws and commands. It's a covenant. It's a covenant, a promise that God makes with his people, and it is full of promises made and promises kept. Just look at how enormous the promise is in verse 22. God says, He will be an enemy to his people's enemies, and he will oppose those who oppose his people. You can possibly ever hope for anyone better to have your back. Who possibly could oppose you if God will oppose your enemies. But there's a really strong condition to that promise. Now, if you look in verse 22, we've got the if at the beginning of the verse, but we've lost in our translation the then that Moses included when he wrote this verse. So look in verse 22. If you listen carefully to what the angel says and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. So the blessings are massive, but the Jews have got conditions to keep on their part if God's going to deliver on his promises. 
How do you and I respond to that conditionality? How do we understand that part of God's word where he makes great promises, but there seems to be a part that's contingent, it's dependent on us? If you look through church history, there's been loads of different ways to try and handle that. But maybe there are two main responses. I wonder if you have perhaps fallen into one of these two camps. One response is to say, that's just Old Testament stuff. In fact, some would say that's, um, that's a description of what you might call a covenant of works. So this is a description of a way that you could be saved by doing stuff. If I do X, Y, and Z, God will save me. The problem with that way of thinking is the New Testament is very clear that God's people, Old and New Testament, have only ever been saved by grace. If you think about it, no human being has ever been saved by works. Adam wasn't saved by works. He fell by works. And you could say Jesus fulfills everything by works, but Jesus isn't only fully man. No human being has ever been saved by works. And if you want to See where the Bible makes that really clear. Read through Romans, read through Galatians. So what's described here, it can't be a salvation by works. It's one end. The other end of the spectrum would tend to flatten or ignore this conditional bit. So so the argument would go something like this. If you look at everything in the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, Everything is a description of God's grace first and then God giving commands to his people. Okay? So God saved the Israelites from Egypt. That's God's grace. They didn't deserve it. They couldn't have done it by themselves. That's God's grace. And then what God does is he gives his laws and his commands to his saved people. But even that is an overflow of his grace. And there is much in that that is absolutely right and true. Because we are all saved by grace, and all of the laws that God gives us are an overflowing of God's grace. But that view overlooks what is a very clear if-then condition in verse 22. Now, why do I mention this? It's because if we adopt either of those views... I think we're going to both misunderstand this passage and bring that misunderstanding into the New Testament when we come to other passages. So when we get into the New Testament, if we come to the commands of Jesus, do we, if we've adopted that second view, flatten the conditions, everything by grace, do we say, well, I don't really need to listen to the commands because God just deals with me in grace? See, see how it's important? We need to understand how are we to think of these conditions so that we will rightly understand the commands that God gives us in the New Testament. So what I want to give you this morning are four things, boundaries as it were, framework, so that when you come to these kinds of passages in the Old Testament, you know how to handle them rightly, and then you'll be able to rightly understand all that follows in the New Testament. Okay? That's the Big picture. That's why I want to take a bit of time doing this. Point number one. The Old Testament Israelites had been physically redeemed, but they weren't all spiritually redeemed. I think sometimes as Christians, we, 
move a bit too quickly in the way that we think and describe what was going on in the Old Testament. So yes, the Israelites were saved from slavery in Egypt, where Pharaoh was a brutal overlord who caused them enormous distress, and God wonderfully rescued them and liberated them physically. But not all who were physically freed were spiritually saved. We know that because of what happens throughout the history of Israel. We know that because of what Paul tells us as a Jew, as he looks back on all of the Old Testament history, when he writes in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So, Old Testament Israelites were physically redeemed, but not all of them were spiritually redeemed. Second thing, God's still unfolding his plan of redemption, and that won't be fully revealed until Jesus. What we can't do is um, as we're reading through our Bibles, stop part way somewhere in the Old Testament and say, aha, here there was a way that you could have been saved by works. There was a point in all of God's dealings with men and women where it was possible to do enough to be forgiven. That's not what God's doing. These commands aren't a way of earning salvation, and God hasn't fully revealed his plan of salvation. Look at the detail in verses 22 and 23. God's very specific about the, the, the obedience and the blessing that he's tying together. So they've, they're to do everything that he's told them to do. They're to do everything the angel's telling them to do because the angel is God himself. And if they obey those commands, then, verse 23, then he'll bring them into the promised land and remove all their enemies for them. So, and this is where I want to be as clear as I can, because it's very easy to go wrong here. Part of the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of works, but not for salvation. Part of the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of works, but not for salvation. You've got these physically rescued people who are commanded to obey God's law so that they could inherit the promised land. The problem was, not all Israel was Israel. So God had physically rescued his people, ethnically, given them his laws, but so many of them weren't spiritually saved. And so what did they do with his laws? They didn't obey them. Because they couldn't obey them. And what do we see? An entire generation missed out on the blessings of inheriting the promised land. The point God's making in this unfolding plan of redemption is that God's people can't keep God's law on their own. Left to ourselves, we are always going to sin and disobey. And if there was only one attribute of God and it is justice... All of us could only expect judgment. See, all of this is supposed to be bringing us to see that we get to a point of despairing of ourselves on our own. All of this right in the middle of the Mosaic Covenant and all of the law that's there is driving us to see that we need a saviour who can do what none of us can do on our own. Right in the middle of the law, we are longing for Jesus. 
And the third way that we are reminded of that is we are to obey. Sorry, obeying God is the joyful response of saved people. That's the third thing we need to remember. Obeying God is the joyful response of saved people. That should have been true of the Israelites because they'd been physically saved, been rescued from all of that brutality. And God in his great love had said, and this, this is how my people are to reflect me in the world. But we know what's going to happen next because so many of them weren't saved and they therefore didn't obey. If physically saved Israelites should have obeyed, spiritually saved Christians must obey. We know the cost of our salvation. And not only can we behold the great cost of Calvary, but in trusting in Jesus, it's not just a mental assent thing. I know that Jesus died on the cross. I believe in that. Therefore, I'm a Christian. In doing that, God gives us faith by the Holy Spirit coming into our life and changing our hearts. Such that now, we're not just a group of people who think, ah, Christian worldview, that kind of makes sense. In all of the mess, I'm going to believe that to be true. To be a Christian is to be someone who's given new birth. Such that we have the Spirit of God enabling us to not just look at these commands and think, okay, well, there's good there. But to think, these are God's gift to his people. That we would rightly reflect his image in the world such that men and women and boys and girls would come to follow him for themselves. Now, given the culture of our day, um, I want us to absolutely nail this home. Becoming a Christian does not mean you are now free to do whatever you like. So Jesus told his disciples, if you love me... Keep my commands. We've seen Paul tell the Corinthians recently in our study, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There is no distinction between loving God and obeying his commandments. Obeying God is a joyful response of saved people. But, but all of that obedience comes under the wonderful umbrella, fourthly, of God's grace that overrules our failures. Remember what the Israelites were about to do. Do at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. Remember what they're going to do when they get to the very border of the promised land and they can see it. Now remember all that story. Look back at verse 22 with the if you listen carefully and do all that he says, you tell me, did God's people obey God's commands? We'll try it again. Did God's people obey God's commands? No. Okay. Did they fulfill the condition that God gave them? No. But did they inherit the promised land? Yes. Why? Because God's grace pours over all of our failing. Right here 
in the middle of the law, there is this beautiful description of the mercy of God. And in a few chapters' time, we'll get to this, Lord willing, next year, in chapter 34, there's a lovely way in which Moses proclaims, the Lord, the Lord is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is the God who loves his people despite our inability to keep his commandments. So brothers and sisters, God does command his people to obey him. But we have to understand that calling in its place and under grace. Longer point, the rest are quicker. Third thing that we are to remember is that God will bring his people safely home. God will bring his people safely home. God is the guarantor of his own promises and God never defaults. Rich um, very helpfully reminded us that God had made his promises to Abram. And actually God had made promises to Abram that were exactly about what we're now reading in chapter 23 in Exodus. See, all the way back in, in Genesis 15, God had been saying to Abram, your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years, and after that, your descendants are going to come back to this land. And I'm going to give it to you. Why? Well, at that point, the Amorites would be judged. This is what God is telling Abram 400 and something years prior. Why are the Amorites judged? It is not because the Jews were anti-Amorite. The Amorites were judged because the Amorites were anti-God. It's really important that we see that. This is not just one nation that doesn't like another nation. This is the sovereign king of the universe ruling all of his commands and promises together and bringing just judgment to bear on a people who've lived in rebellion and sin. So the exact thing that God told Abraham in Genesis 15, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God didn't just suddenly turn on the Amorites to make space for the Israelites. The Amorites were willingly continuing to grow in all of their sin for more than 400 years until the just judgment of God would come and come in such a way that he would fulfill more of his promises for his people. One of the ways that he'd bring that about, verse 27, was by sending his terror ahead of the Israelites and throwing into confusion every nation you encounter. That is exactly what Jericho experienced. I don't know if it was, we were reading uh, this passage, the story of Rahab came to your mind. And there you get this seemingly impenetrable city of Jericho, and the spies find Rahab, who's living in the city. She's not a Jew. She's part of Jericho, and she says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. What are they? They're a bunch of nomadic people in tents. 
The people in Jericho are in this massive fortified city, and we're the ones melting in fear. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. You've got all of this physically imposing, physically, you know, um, impenetrable city quaking in their boots because the fear of the name and the glory of God has gone before his people. Now, no one's exactly sure what the hornet in verse 28 is a reference to. Some wonder whether perhaps there was a very literal plague of hornets that God sent in advance. Others think probably it's, it's a metaphor for this sense of fear. I don't know if you've ever seen a hornet coming. Uh, there are members in my family who turn and flee when you see a massive bee coming because they've been stung before. And, and perhaps that's the description here. But either way, God himself is promising to clear the promised land of all his enemies. But did you notice his grace in how? Look in verses 29 and 30. If God emptied the whole of the promised land in one go, the land would turn to rack and ruin. So what God graciously does is he moves at a speed that the Israelites could manage, which is a remarkable grace, because otherwise they'd inherit this land that they couldn't properly harvest, they couldn't properly protect their crops or their cattle. It's God's grace that is enabling them to grow as a nation so that they can slowly, sustainably take over all the land that they're given. But if you know the story of what happens, you know that that's not the whole story of what then takes place. God was going to graciously give it to them little by little so that they could maintain it as they went. What happens when you get to the book of Judges? People disobeyed God. They wouldn't move out. Those people, God called them to move out because they were disobeying God. So that list in verse 31 of all of the area of land that they're going to take, that doesn't come until David's kingdom, years and years later. And we'll be better to able, I hope, to apply that point as we look at the fourth and final thing God reminds us of here. Fourthly, God requires his people to worship him and him alone. Now you look in verse 34, sorry, 24, there are Really clear commands here for what the Israelites shouldn't do. Don't bow down before their gods. Don't worship them. Don't follow their practices. You go down to verse 32, it's picking up on the same theme. Don't make a covenant with them or with their gods. Don't uh, let them live in your land. Why? It goes on. Or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. When I started reading through this passage this week, I got to that point, and the big question in my mind was, why? Why would the Israelites be tempted to follow one of the pagan gods in Canaan? Just put yourself in the position of the Israelites at this point in history. What have they experienced? They have seen that their God 
has completely wiped out all the false gods of Egypt. And it wasn't like a fair fight, not quite sure which god's going to come out tops. God smashed them, completely destroyed them. He showed himself sovereign and all-powerful over all of the false gods. So why, what on earth would make it likely that the Jews would say, actually, I'm going to worship these gods now? That's a really important heart question for all of us because that's our experience too. If you're a Christian, you have experienced the miraculous power of God to rescue you from your old way of life where you didn't worship God, you didn't care for God, to a place now where you do love him and you do want to serve him. You think back over the course of the past week to some of the mercies and the graces and the kindness that God has given to you that perhaps we're all too quick to look over, but demonstrations of what it means to be blessed by the God of heaven. You come to a Sunday and we gather together as his people. We're reminded of that beautiful privilege of not doing this Christian journey on our own. We're part of a church family who have that little foretaste, just an imperfect little foretaste of the glory of what it would be like in heaven where all the redeemed are gathered and freed from sin to worship the king forever. You just remember all of those things that you know. And what's going to happen on Monday? or Tuesday, or Wednesday, when we, not just you, we, are surrounded by all of the cultural pressures of our day. We are going to be tempted to turn our hearts from the God who has demonstrated his sovereign power over all things in our life and everywhere and trust in false gods money or reputation or career, whatever it may be. Why? You see, our, our experience is the same as the Israelites' experience. Why would we do that? <laughs> it's because ordinary, everyday living is a spiritual battle. Ordinary, everyday living is a spiritual battle. And that's what God was preparing the Jews for. Now, in, in their circumstance, let's think about why that, what that would look like for them, and then we'll see what it looks like for us. In their experience, by the time they get to Canaan, what do they want to do and be? They, they want to be successful farmers and carers of this beautiful land that God has provided for them. So there they are. They, they, they've worked out which bit of land they're going to be responsible for, and they start looking around at their neighbors and think, oh, you're doing a lovely job with your trees, and, and your crop seems to be growing really well. And you sidle up to them and say, well, what is it that you do exactly? How, how do you do such a good job in, in, in this area so that we can do the same? Because we want to be successful farmers too. And what their neighbors would say to them is, well, um, let me tell you how our gods bless our harvests. You see, our gods can't eat for themselves. So the deal we've got with our gods is this. Uh, they look after all the other bits that we need for a harvest. They provide us with the rain and the sun and all of the growth that comes for the harvest. And then at the end, what we do, because they can't, is we feed them by providing them with offerings so that they can then be fed. 
And that's a cycle that we do, and it works for us. So look at this. Then you've got this newly established nation of Jews thinking, well, I wonder if we should be doing the same thing too. There's a temptation to fit in and farm the way that they farm. So you start thinking, well, maybe I should sow like they sow, and I should harvest like they harvest, and I should worship like they worship. So God warns them. The God who loves them. The God who alone can save them. He warns them not even to begin going down that road. And such a night and day contrast is this. that Verse 24, it's not only the stuff that you shouldn't do. There's an active role to take. You are to just get rid of everything you see that might remind you of that idolatrous way of living. Because God knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves. God knows that if we leave some of that stuff just cluttering around, corner of your house, browser history of your web page, around the corner from where you live, whatever it might be, if your eyes begin to see it, your heart begins to long for it, and then you're ensnared. So now, how do we apply those principles today? Because we're surrounded by people who are worshipping false gods as much as the Jews were. Indeed, as much as we would still be doing today had God not graciously saved us. They might not be religious gods, they might be more material gods, but they're gods in the sense that they're the things that our neighbours, our friends, trust in and rely on and put all of their hopes in. Now, our circumstances are different. We're new covenant Christians. Jesus did not tell us to remove ourselves from the world and go and set up a new nation somewhere else where we could be separate from everywhere else. Jesus has told us that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be salt and light to the world, so that in the way that we live differently, all of our friends and neighbors are going to think, oh, there's a different way of doing these things. And through our witness, they're going to hear something more of the goodness of the gospel. But for that to happen, we need to be convinced that the ordinary, everyday living is a spiritual battle. You are going to be surrounded tomorrow morning by, by habits and ways of doing things that everybody else thinks is completely normal. In fact, not only is it normal, it's the only normal. And you should conform. I don't know what that looks like in your circumstance. Maybe there are certain things you need to say or, or ways you need to behave towards other people in order to advance your career, because that's the only way we do it. Maybe there's a particular way that as a man you should speak to women or as a woman you should speak to men in your workplace, in your neighborhood, because that's the only way that everybody does it. Maybe there's a way of living that is so dependent on building a portfolio or trusting in your own provision because that's the way that we show that we are safe. Whatever the specific ungodly practices are, 
I wonder whether each of us, myself included, need to spend time today thinking, what do I need to demolish? Not just tied into the corner somewhere. Demolish. And you might say, hmm, it's Old Testament language, Jim. We don't need to go quite that strong. Well, here's Jesus. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I think sometimes this is hard for us to do on our own because we don't always see the things that we've become blind to in our own lives. So if you want to think about a really practical way to put some of this into practice this week, why don't you spend some time, husband and wife, or find a dear friend who knows you well and say, Have I still got some idols in my life that I'm not aware of? Can you help me think of specific things that I've just got stuck in a rut over because I've adopted the culture of the day rather than trusted the King of Kings? It doesn't just end with denial. I want us to see the beautiful optimism as we close See, God gives us this beautiful fullness of worship that we can and should enjoy as his people. Instead of bowing down to false gods and false worship, God reminds us as we finish of all of the blessings that flow from rightly worshipping him. So you get into verse 25, and God seems to go back to some of that language of what it was like in Eden when he describes the fullness of life for his people who follow him. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and your water. I'll take away disease from among you and none will miscarry. will be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. Now the Jews did not fully experience that in Israel and we do not fully experience that today. You know this church family well enough to know that there are godly men and women whose lives have not been this experience. That is not because they are not faithfully trusting in Jesus. That's because the fullness of the fulfillment of these promises cannot be found in a world still bound by sin. Our hope is that there is a day coming of a new creation, where the beauty of all that was experienced in Eden will be recreated for us to enjoy in a world where idolatry will be banished, suffering will be forgotten, and we will be able to worship the Lord forever. That is the day God has promised to take his people to. Until that day, God promises to be with us. He commands us to obey him. And he promises to bring us safely home.